Hello, everyone. This is Martin Willis, your host. I have a great interview coming up with Brother Arnold of the Shaker Village, one of the last three surviving Shakers. Before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the Shaker Village, Sabbath Day Lake, New Gloucester, Maine. There are several workshops in the calendar of events. Now, if you're listening on your iPod or some other website, you want to jump over to antiqueauctionforum.com and you'll see the link right under this podcast that'll bring you to the calendar of events. But there's uh, workshops, including herbal workshops, woodworking workshops, including how to make a shaker-style bench. Um, There's craft workshops. There's uh, natural history and environment. Also in the calendar of events, there's a farmer's market. There's uh, Shaker Village Folk Festivals. All that coming right up. Um, This is, of course, 2014. But um, if you're listening to this podcast a year later, please do check the link again on our website. It will bring you to the Shakers website. You know, when I did this interview with Brother Arnold earlier today, I neglected to talk about the Shaker Library. This is a very important library. If you want to find out any type of information about the Shakers, there's thousands of books related to the Shakers. There's all kinds of uh, ephemera and early images. And I also have to tell you that if you're planning on visiting the Shaker Library, you do have to call and make an appointment. You can't just walk in. But anything to do with Shakers, you want to research, it's there. And now we're ready to start the interview with Brother Arnold. And I hope you find it as enjoyable as I did. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. All right, I'm in Sabbath Day Lake community, and I'm with Brother Arnold. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for uh, joining us for this show. And you are one of the last few surviving Shakers. Well, I'm one of the three Uh that presently live here, but we're still open to new members. Uh So we are three at present with the hopes of having more. Oh, that's good. Now, this is the only active Shaker community correct, in the entire world. In the entire world. But there are Shaker villages that are open for, say, Canterbury and places like that. Right, which are restorations, uh, living uh, history museums, things like that. I mean, not all of the Shaker communities survive or are used for that, but there's still quite a few. Now, there was like uh, a lot of times when you see furniture, you see labels on it, Mount Lebanon. Mm -hmm. Um, As a museum, has that survived? Uh, not really, but there's plans to have part of that property made into a museum. Mm-hmm. The uh, Shaker Museum, presently at Old Chatham, New York, has acquired the North Family site, and they're attempting to restore the buildings. And what happened was when the Shakers sold it off, they sold it off in pieces. Mm. And it was a very, very large community made up of uh, eight families at one time. So in that main street, there was the North Family you'd first come to, and then there was the church. And those were, and the second order, that had all been bought up in the 1920s by the Darrell School Mm. for boys originally, but it's just a prep school period now. And then a private family owns the second family, and the Sufi order has the South family. Uh And and sort of a a nutshell, can you go over the history of Shakers? And I know they came here like right around the Revolution time. Was it a dissension from England? 
Right. It, it started in 1747, mm-hmm. and the first Shakers had come out of uh, the first Methodists, and they were very Pentecostal, very much in the holiness movement, no creeds, and their worship service was frenzied. There became very radicalized, especially under a leader by the name of Ann Lee, who we call Mother Ann. In 1770, she takes over the church, and she is very vocal and very physical and starts to make a name for herself, not perhaps in the best of ways, by doing things like marching into divine services in Christ Church and calling them all the whores of Avalon. (laughs) (laughs) And when you think about it, remember, England is... uh, uh, a state church. So, I mean, when you go against the church, you go against the state. Mm. So she was in prison. Wow. And uh, anyways, so in 1774, they decided to emigrate to America. Not all of them, but about 12 of them, all told, in two different loads came over to America. And she established her first community outside of Albany, New York, in a place called Niskayuna, which means a place of corn flats. Hmm. And they drained the swamps, and they stayed very quiet for a few years because of the revolution. They're pacifists and and all that, and just so English was just wrong. But on May 19th of 1780, uh, an event occurred which is now called the famous Dark Day. There are millions of acres of forest land in Quebec that were burning out of control. Hmm. So over New York State, New England... The sun was not seen to rise or set. And given the circumstances of how everybody thought that the American Revolution was probably a prefigurement towards the apocalypse, they were convinced that this was definitely a sign. Hmm. So people were repenting and baptizing, and the Shakers went public with their testimony right then and started to make a lot of converts to the point where Mother Anne decided that they would go and visit them. And she made a missionary tour through New England that lasted approximately four years. Mm. But she encountered very bitter persecution. Uh, She was stoned. She was whipped. She was dragged by her hair down the stairs. She was imprisoned. Uh, She had all kinds of outrages committed against her person and the elders with her. So in 1784, her natural brother, William, who was part of the movement, he died. And most apparently, due to some of this beating that he endured. And Mother started slipping away, too, and she also died in 1784. And it didn't seem by any physical reason other than exhaustion. But later on, they had exhumed the bodies, moved them because they didn't end up owning the land where they were originally buried. Mm. And they found that she had had a fractured skull. Mm. So evidently, that's what caused her death. And then it passes to uh, Father James Whitaker, who was a young, energetic convert of hers from England. But he only lived three years. So in 1787, the church becomes all-American. And it's very American in its feeling. And I don't really believe Shakerism could survive anywhere else but in America. Now, what happened to the communities that were left in England? They just fade out? Dissolved. Almost immediately. Without the the inner core of leadership Mm -hmm. there they fall apart very quickly. Uh At this point, they're in New York, and they make the tour through New England. Did they start establishing villages? I mean, this is... Well, not exactly. See, Mother's vision of the church was not communities. It was neighborhoods. It was a house church movement. I see. So people would gather together to try to worship as they could. 
um, but mostly they still lived in families. Although they would be celibate, they still lived in family units. And it was the Americans who start drawing them into formalized communities under their first leader, Father Joseph Meacham, and his associate, Mother Lucy Wright. And they really codify the whole concept of what we think about Shakers and Shakerism and how it evolved in the marching and the dancing and the movements that give us the name and the industries and the financial basis as well as the living arrangements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they expand. So they went to all the centers where Mother was. They had big bands of believers that they could draw them in together. So like Sabbath Day Lake, there were five farmers here uh, who became Shakers. And they consecrated their land, which gave them enough of a basis to be able to support Right here them. at the center? Right here. Uh-huh. And the buildings were taken down? From the well, not really. No. Yeah. They were incorporated. They were used. Uh-huh. Uh, they, the houses were only built in the 1770s. So, um, and Shakers so arrived here. Yeah. Yeah. And they, why would you destroy something? Yeah. Especially with how ex- it's not only expensive, but it's so time-consuming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what they did was just to use them as long as they could. But when the buildings were deemed to be too small for any more use, they were gotten rid of in one way or another. Yeah. And then newer ones were put up in their place that fit the need of the community. And the height of this setting right here, how mm-hmm. many Shakers were here at the most? Well, Sabbath Day Lake was one of the smallest communities, and we peaked almost immediately. Oh, really? So, mm-hmm. So, founded in 1783, formally organized in 1794, and by that time, we had already declined. Wow. So, we started off with probably 80 or 90 people when we first, in 1783. By 1787, we had peaked out at 183 people, mm-hmm. and then it was a decline. Wow. And it stayed pretty steady around 50 or 60 people, uh, right from the 1820s up until the 1940s. Now, to survive, I read somewhere that this particular community had money trouble all all along. Right. And to survive, um, you know, part of this show or a lot of people that listen to the show have a real appreciation for objects that Mm -hmm. the Shakers made, and we can talk a little bit about that. For instance, Oprah Winfrey's a big collector of, you know, Shaker furniture and pieces like that. Um, So... What did they do to survive? They sold seeds. I know that. I've seen the the seed market. Manufacturing. That's where it was. A Shaker community would always be practically located in a place that had a mill privilege. Mm -hmm. And one of the first buildings put up was a grist mill, followed very shortly thereafter by a sawmill. And then improvements to larger mills. And finally, in 1853, the Great Mill. And uh, they had a 30-foot overshot wheel the second largest overshot wheel in the country. And it had four floors. Each floor had a different operation. In the basement, they made shingles and cider. First floor was a grist mill. Second floor was a turning mill, machine shop. And the third floor held the uh, carding mill. And they eventually... Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a cooper shop adjacent that ran out the same power. And eventually, they dismantled the old sawmill and incorporated it into the great mill. So the economy was, let's make things. So we made buckets and firkins, and we had the seed business. We made brooms. We made boxes. We made spinning wheels in great numbers. That was really the earliest industry that really paid off. Mm. So they, they had a diverse, and then they had some farming. But most of the farming in the first days had more to do with what the family needed than what they could do something commercially. 
Mm -hmm. Are there a lot of pieces here that were actually made here? Oh, yeah. Quite a bit. Uh, we're we're fortunate in that this community has never disbanded. So, you know, you have objects that can go back to even before there was a community. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, they also, they peaked into the antique trade themselves. And in the 1890s, they found that the old things made money. Is that right? I had never heard that before. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, they were right there for it. And uh, we had originally what was called the old-fashioned room. Uh, and they took things that the founders had made or brought in, yeah. and they started selling them. Um, uh, because the Shaker stuff wasn't old enough at that time, yeah. even the oldest pieces. But then by 1900, they started to be old enough. And people are coming from Boston and New York. And we have Poland Spring only three miles to our north. Right. A lot of those wealthy people were coming down here and looking for um, curios and, yeah. and old things. So the Shakers were more than happy to look in their storage attics and their sheds and start to find things they could put out for sale. And then where we really went wholesale was in 1931, when the Alfred community closed and merged here. And they brought over... Right during the Depression. Right during the Depression. Fancy goods were not selling. Mm -hmm. Um, They they were having a hard time making a living. But the Mm -hmm. one thing that was selling was antiques. Wow. And so they had all of this furniture and objects from the other community, and anything that wasn't used, they put up for sale. Now, I know one of the great uh, cabinet makers in Alfred moved here at that time. The last name Green, Elder Henry, Elder uh-huh. Henry Green. Yeah, okay. yeah, and I know that um, one of his one of his sewing tables sold for an amazing amount of money at one time. Very, very highly regarded. Mm-hmm. We um, still have quite a few of them. You still have them? Uh huh. Do you have some that he made? Oh yeah. Yeah, nice, nice. And we have uh, secretaries he made and writing desks he made. Wow. For the members. Now, when you think of Shaker objects and you think of perfection. And where did, where did that begin, as far as you know? Did that begin in the very beginning of them making items? Well, we try to do everything in imitation of Christ, and he did all things well. Now, Shakers also believe in something called a progressive, a progressive perfection. Hmm. So if you worked in whatever you're doing, we'll say cooking, and you can make this stew the best you can possibly make it, and everybody loves it. But you've been making it for 10 years, and you're doing exactly the same. Well, you're not still so perfect because you haven't been able to improve it. Yeah. Anything you can do that improves it, you see, and, and, and really it's only by doing that you're able to understand how you could get something thinner or how you can make it more pleasing in proportion or how you can do this and how you can do that to make it better. So, you know, a 10-year-old child does perfectly as perfect as they're capable of, and hopefully when they're 18, it's... They're doing something a lot better, and and likewise in the whole of life. So for the Shakers, everything has a spiritual connotation to it. And that's what we do when we're laboring for a gift of God, when we're trying to work out on our faith. And it's no different for us as when we're sweeping a floor or making an object or doing whatever else. So you try to do it as perfectly as possible. Now, when we're making things for the world, if you make something shoddy, they're not going to buy it. Mm, and so true. you've got to know yeah. your market. Yeah. And that's what the Shakers attempted to do is know their market and to try to make things that were pleasing, something that people would find useful, or even if it was fancy, something that would attract their eyes, something that would make them want to purchase what the Shakers were selling. Now, how did they communicate in a way to, for instance, um, this Shaker chair right here with the mushroom caps on mm-hmm. the arm? Of, I don't know. I know... 
the Rockers are like number fours and number fives, something right. like that. Um, now, how did this community and the Canterbury community make almost the identical chairs? Was there a communication? Oh, our, our chairs weren't the same. No, almost every community made different chairs. And okay. the one thing is you can tell that by the finials. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and the Mount Lebanon ones are, the ones that were made for sale were certainly formalized in the 1870s to have mm-hmm. a specific look and style about them so people would recognize them when they went to purchase them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I had the pleasure of meeting Sister Ethel in um, Canterbury years ago. Um, did you did you communicate? Were you involved in the Shakers back? I've been here for 36 years. 36 years. I should have asked you that at the beginning. Sorry. Um, and did you communicate with other communities when they were active? Well, in the time I've lived here, the Canterbury was the only one that had any other Shakers in it. Uh-huh. But, yeah, we used to go down and see Sister Ethel. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I know I'm bouncing around here, and I That's right. kind of want to get back to, um, I mean, it's all very fascinating to me. Getting back to objects, pantry boxes, were they made here? Mm-hmm. Sure. And did they have any distinction from other, like, for instance, Canterbury's? Well, you know, there's subtle differences in, in the oval boxes, and it mostly has to do with exactly how oval they are and what the fingers look like. Mm-hmm. And that's something you can usually then start to distinguish what community they came from. Like the Harvard shake is very distinct. It's that big, you know, the, more like the single lap than, um, are you familiar with the Harvard Shakers? Right. Pieces? Mm-hmm. It's totally different than, it doesn't have the fingers. Right. And actually, I don't think that those really were Shaker-made ones. The ones from Harvard that were Shaker-made actually did have fingers. Those are so mis- is that a misconception? Yeah, that's a misconception. Those yeah. are from Fry Mill, mostly. You know, it's funny. I've been in the, the antique business for all my life, basically, over 40-some-odd years, and um, every time one of those sha- those boxes come up, they call it Harvard Shaker. Always. So I know. it's a misinterpretation. Yeah. It's a misconception. Yeah. But Harvard boxes, two communities made what we call left-handed boxes, uh-huh. and Harvard's one and Alfred was the other. Where the, the fingers came around the other side? Right. Oh. Huh. Any particular reason why? Well, I would say somebody was left-handed. And uh-huh. enough, you know, that they actually did enough boxes that they were... Fi- being left-handed, I understand it. I, I can't really wrap. I can't wrap my mind, and I can't wrap a box around if I'm the wrong way for me. Yeah. And so, uh, it becomes something. If if you're only going to be in the box shop, we'll say for a little bit of time, well, no one's going to bother to change the molds for you or anything else. However, if you're the one who's assigned there, yeah. And you're not going to be able to perform your duty if you don't have the right tools and etc. So. That's that's a giving over. Now, who they were, I don't know. But yeah. um, there obviously had to be a couple of brothers who were there for some considerable time to be able to give us as many left-handed boxes as we have. Now, it almost sounded like you have tried this. Have you have you tried to make boxes? Oh, yeah, yeah, i made boxes before. Oh, and what other things have you made? Oh, good Lord. Over the years, eh, lots of different things, really. Really? Mm. And what about case pieces or furniture? Oh, nay, nothing Just, big. Pegboards, and uh, we used to do cutouts of animals, folk mm-hmm. animal things that we used to sell. Um, then weaving, done, well, lots of handcrafts. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Why didn't the Shakers want artwork on the walls? Artwork was expensive, and it was superfluous and worldly. 
So they just didn't want that. However, what you see by the 1890s is like everybody else. They've got calendars and they liked a picture and they would frame it. Also, mm-hmm. mottos. Mottos were really big. Mm-hmm. Well, the one, was it the hands to work, hearts to God? Yeah, I just said uh, that. What are some of the other? Well, the mottos that mostly hung up were more, much more Protestant, you know, mm-hmm. good old Protestant Christian kind of things, you know. Uh, what can I think of them right now? That's okay. Like I say, you know, but I mean, it's just things you'd know right from your childhood, and you you've seen them all around because every grandmother in America made them, you know, and put them. They put oh, just them like in the Victorian era, there's right. all those models, right? And that's like exactly what home, they're... sweet home type right. of stuff. And there were a couple of those that were in there too. Uh-huh. And then then they started having uh, printed works that they found, and occasionally. Some Shakers actually uh, even started painting. Brother Delmer did quite a few. Sister Ada, Sister Jeannie, all produced paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Brother Delmer did his strictly for his own pleasure and kept all of his paintings. Sister Ada used to mostly make hers as gifts to other people. And Sister Jeannie used to paint bottoms to the fancy goods boxes. And she would do scenes and things like that, and then they would sell them. Those must be real collectible right now. They are. Mm. I mean, she, I don't think she did that many of them, but she did enough of them. Now, you say you've been a Shaker for 36 years. Correct. And when you first started, do you know approximately how many Shakers were alive at that time? There were eight here. I made the eighth one. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And the other communities? It was just Uh, There were three. I think there were only three at Canterbury. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, how do you feel the future of? Do you, are you optimistic that more people may come in and keep this going? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Um, I've lived here for 36 years, and in that time, 30 people have actually entered the community mm-hmm. to try it. Some have stayed, you know, a week, and others have stayed years, mm-hmm. and then decided it wasn't for them, or they no longer was it for them. Mm-hmm. And they've left. So it's not that we don't have interest. It's just we don't seem to have the ability to keep them. <laughs> uh-huh. But that's always been the case because yes. you look at the thousands of people who have lived here, we have less than 200 buried in our cemetery. Wow. So, so they come in and they leave. And and there were children, or, orphans? Right. The community used to bring in a lot of children. Mm-hmm. And during the Civil War, I would imagine after the Civil War, there was even an influx of more orphans at that time? Yeah, right. Well, and the community kind of kept the numbers up artificially in that sense by having so many children and mm-hmm. thinking, you know, just playing a percentages that how many of these kids will stay, you know, mm-hmm. and hopefully carry on the work. So um, talking about work, this place is really, really involved. You have an orchard and gardens Herb gardens, vegetable gardens, we have pasture, hay fields, we have cattle, we have sheep, we have pigs. Uh, what else do we have? And who, how, three people can't do all that work. That is correct. So do you have volunteers? We have some volunteers. We have paid labor as uh, well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, now, for instance, we also have a gravel pit, and we have a thousand of the 1,800 acres is in forest land. So that's managed as a woodlot. And tree farm. So mm-hmm. we have professionals who do all of that. We have state licenses. The orchard has been leased since the 1950s. Oh. So we don't have to worry about that. There's 19,000 trees there. We we just couldn't do it. 
And we couldn't take a financial loss. If we, we had a bad year, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So we don't do that. But we have the herb gardens and we have uh, volunteers who work on those to help us. And then the vegetable garden is mostly just me and our director, Michael Graham, and myself and Jacob Bergeron, who's a young man who lives here with us, not as a shaker. Uh, we do most of all of the animal work. Mm-hmm. Take care of that. Wow. Can you, for the listener um, that may want to come visit here sometime, can mm-hmm. you kind of give an overall of what's here in the village for them to sure. see? Well, we have 18 buildings, mm-hmm. and we it's very much our home. So we ask people not to wander around too much. It's easy to do that, and I yeah. could understand why you would want to because it's just beautiful and it draws you in. But it's dangerous because of farm equipment and things like that. And, you know, we do have liability insurance, but we don't want to use it. Yeah, sure. So we ask you not to, but we have a a reception center where we welcome people and there are exhibits there for them to look at as well as merchandise that they could purchase. We have the Shaker store here in the building where we're having our conversation. And this has been the building where the world has been entertained. This Uh, building we're in right now. Right. But it's also like the boarding well, it's our guest house. Guest house. Oh, this is the guest house. Right. And then we have the store. And what, what had happened was up until the 1960s when people came to the community, they weren't allowed to go anywhere. And it was all very cloistered and very apart. So that if, when any of our friends or our relatives came, we would meet them up here. And the room we're in here, this was the visiting room. And they were fed up here and housed up here. And the trustees who were set aside to do business with the world lived up here. And so all the business was conducted out of this building. And the Shaker store has been here uh, ever since then, too. So any craft items that we make, uh, our publishing, we publish books, we have our herbs, we have uh, some candies and jams and jellies and notes and our yarn from our sheep, as well as knitted goods from from our, our flock, as well as available up here, too. Then also we have tours that run uh, every hour on the half hour throughout the day, Monday through Saturday, 10 to 4.30. I and would recommend that. I went on that a few times. It's, it's a very, very good tour. And you have a guide who takes you through the exteriors of the village and tells you what all the buildings are. And you go into our meeting house, which is the oldest shaker building on the property, which is filled with some really beautiful objects. And you get the whole story of the shakers. And you move on to other buildings that show Shakerism as it evolves into the 20th century. So, uh, And we also right now have up an exhibit called Creating Chosen Land, which is showing you the village through the 200 years, its buildings, and many of which aren't here any longer, because the Shakers always took down buildings we weren't using. Mm. And that's because we pay taxes on everything. So we pay taxes. We pay taxes. That's unusual, isn't it? I mean, unfortunately, uh, it is. But Mother yeah. Anne was very adamant about that—that uh-huh. that the only true separation of church and state can be when we act like everybody else in the state and pay our fair share of taxes. Wow. Of course, in her day, we weren't paying thirty thousand dollars a year in taxes. So, wow. But there you go. Yeah, yeah. Now you've been here thirty-six years, right? Why have you stayed compared to people that leave? Well, I feel called of God to be here, and that's why I've remained. Wow. It's faith and faith alone, because believe me, it is not an easy life. Yeah. But Can we go over kind of what your day-to-day life is? Sure. It's still very much tied to the land. Uh-huh. And so, um, because we have the farm and the animals and all of that, 
so it requires indoor and outdoor work. But I generally get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and all of us who are members of the community say private prayers in our rooms, and you get dressed and go about and do what you need to do. I, I Right now I'm the cook and the baker. Oh, really? So I get down to the kitchen and start breakfast and dinner preparations. We have breakfast at 7.30. We eat all of our meals in common, and our guests come to those meals too. Then we have our first communal prayer service of the day. Following that, that's generally around 8. And at 8.30, we start the workday going out, whatever that might be. For me, it's heading to the barns, taking care of the animals, uh, coming back, working on food preparation or working in the garden, doing business, uh, entertaining whoever we have to, doing whatever it is what needs to be done during the day. And then we meet at 11.30 for prayers, dinner, our big meals at noontime. Then uh, work again, 4 o'clock I go back to the barn and... Then I prepare supper, 5.30 supper, and then the evenings are pretty much open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have a sitting room where we can gather with the television. We have three daily newspapers, uh, time for conversation and catching up and perhaps talking about what the next day is going to bring or what is something that we might need to be doing. And if you need to catch up on any work, catch up on some work. And... Uh, that's about it. Sundays are different in the sense that we do no unnecessary work, and we have public meeting, the one service of the week that's open to the outside world. Right. And that's at 10 a.m., and right now it's in the dwelling house because it hasn't been warm enough to be in the meeting house. Which is across the street. Which is across the street and has no heat and no electricity, so it limits when we can be there. Yeah. Now, I know there's always separation between men and women mm-hmm. in the communities. Um, the, the other two Shakers? Our sisters. They're sisters. So, I mean, didn't I, I think in Canterbury when I went through that, they had like separate stairways. and is that, do. Is, is all that still the same? So, still the same. The sisters have their side of the house. I have my side. Mm-hmm. And all the rooms that are shared in common are in the middle of the house. Yeah, I see. Uh-huh. And so generally we still eat at separate tables, male guests with me and the female guests with the sisters. But, I mean... It's not like it's a terrible sin if uh, we have too many people here or there and they they go over to the other table. And at supper time, we eat more informally, so it's much more of a gathering of people around. Yeah. Well, um, this has been a real pleasure. I hope that um, the the Shaker community continues on. It would be nice to see that happen, and hopefully the future will be good and carry on here. Well, thank you very much, and it's our prayer, too. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.